They were known as CSN stores. Rebranding CSN stores. And they wanted to make one cohesive brand. And turning them into... Wayfair, you've got just what I need. Wayfair. They wanted to be everything home to everybody. It was a big idea. What it came up with was four houses in different colors that came together forming one shape that looked like an open box. Turning a dumb crock pot into a smart pot. Crock pots and can openers and things you'd look at and say, you know what, not very exciting. We actually developed a new technology in crock pots and we developed the first programmable smart crock pot. Smart pot. It was a home run. And the air freshener nobody wanted to buy. Especially in entrepreneurial companies that are bootstrapped. You can have a great product, but if you're not able to promote the benefits and make the consumer aware of what they do, that product's going to die on the vine. The failed deodorant in a package you could never get away with today. Men and Company, they came out with a deodorant called Real Deodorant, which was a squeeze top. It was very phallic, and frankly, it was terrible launch, and it was a classic CPG mistake. And rebranding a kitchen mixer with a ninja. It was a very male-oriented type product. We needed to soften it to some degree, so we put a powerful woman on the box in a ninja pose and we came up with the tagline, Rule the Kitchen. This is the Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at, um, let's fix that. Fixing Marketing Problems. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. For Melanie Lowe, business success is putting beauty into the eye of the beholder. She is the owner of M-Space Design. And Melanie, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you. How much familiarity do you have to have with a company before you can comfortably redesign their logo? Well, it depends if I'm doing just the logo or the whole brand identity, but You get to know them pretty well. You have to really find out some things about them. You don't have to know every detail, but you need the big picture of the brand. You have to know what they do, who they're talking to. You really have to get that brand. And you have to know their culture. Usually there's a visionary, usually marketing department or a CEO. They they can tell you who they are. And it's usually enough to go on. How much time do you spend studying your client's competition? So whether it's a rebrand or a startup, I study the client's competition, their space. We want to know what it looks like, what's out there, so that you don't repeat it, so you're not doing something that's the same and you're not stepping on toes that are out there. Is most of your work done for new brands or existing brands? I do both. Some are startups, but a lot are later stages. Either way, they all need to make a change around their brand identity. An example of that would be Wayfair. They were known as CSN stores. They own things like upholstery.com and bedroomfurniture.com, things like that. And they wanted to make one cohesive brand. It was a challenge because they wanted to be everything home to everybody. It was a big idea. But what it came up with was four houses in different colors that came together forming one shape that looked like an open box. And that referred to their packaging shipping aspect of an e-commerce business. And then we came up with color palettes and photography styles and uh, web layouts and worked with a wonderful writer who came up with their a zillion things home, their tagline and voice, and just went on to develop further the brand identity. What tends to come first, the brand personality or the strategic positioning behind it? Both are intertwined. Really, you can't have one without the other. So in a case like Zipcar, for instance, there's the pragmatic reasons that they're there, which is wheels when you want them, transportation, 
And then there's the other ones like freedom and fun and you really have to take all that into account when developing an ID for somebody. It's not just one or the other. When you took them over were they always Zipcar or were they changing their name as well? No, they were Zipcar. The brand that you see out there now is the original logo that's out there now is what I did. But at the time, they had something that existed. It just didn't read well on cars. A lot of times when I work in a rebranding project, there's an intrinsic problem with the ID that they have. So in this case, what they had didn't read. So I worked on helping them bringing that up. When you design a brand, a lot of thought goes into the color, the logo, the font, etc. Do you think the average person gets 100% of it? Oh, no. <laughs> you have to explain it. I mean, when I have presentations, I go through and I explain absolutely everything they're looking at and why they're looking at it. That's what's usually rooted in the strategy because otherwise you will have people saying, "I don't like green. Green means envy." Well, green can mean growth and green can mean good things. So people get caught up in little details, so you try to root it in the strategy in that case. What happens when a client insists on a logo or a color scheme that you know isn't going to do well? That does happen. Again, design's really personal. So sometimes there is a CEO that really will hate a certain color or like a certain color, color in particular. They don't come in on fonts quite as much, but color, yes. So in the Wayfair example that I mentioned, the uh, founders really liked green and purple and some attempts that had been made previously with bright green and purple were horrible. They vibrated together. So, you know, I might take a little license. So in the case of their logo, I used a dark plum for purple and more of a mossy green. You had to tone them down so that it didn't vibrate. But sometimes if they're being insistent and it's really not working, oftentimes they will see that once they see it in use. You have to show them sort of the bad idea and then you show them what your recommendation is. How many of your clients actually use focus groups with their customers while you're involved with the process? Focus groups are tough because everyone's a critic and again when it comes to design we all think we're designers. We all think we can oh yeah that should be blue or green you know everybody's a critic so focus groups for Layouts, more layouts, I don't get it so much with logo design, but you'll get it with layouts, advertising, they get it a lot. People will criticize, and if you really want to go down to the common denominator, you're going to end up with a blue, because in the west, we like blue, a mid-range blue. In the east, it's red. So there's certain things that a lot of people in a room can agree on. You don't want design by committee. You will not get your best product. What trends are you noticing in your business these days? The funny thing with trends is that I find that when I present ideas to people, they say they want something new, they want to break new ground, and they always say they love Apple. But when they really see something new, it's uncomfortable. And somebody's comfortable choosing an idea that they've seen before, hence the trend. It, it might be something that's already out there. That feels comfortable. They're going to be able to sell that in to their president or whoever they have to much easier. Apple, when they named the company Apple, the landscape at the time was deck, compact. You know, really computer, Microsoft, really computer names. People would have criticized the name Apple. That's a kid's store. That's a, that's a record company. You know, they, I don't know if people get the courage that it took to go a different route. How many of your clients really want to take a chance and be different? They all say they do. 
But like I said before, it really takes courage. And the ones that actually do, they're confident in their decision making. My suggestion here would be hire a good designer. Hire somebody whose work you've seen and you like, and then trust them, trust the process. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you. Melanie Lowe, the owner of M Space Design. Coming up on, um, let's fix that. The deodorant packaging you could never get away with today. And rebranding a mixer with a powerful woman logo. But first, the air freshener nobody wanted to buy. And turning a dumb crockpot into a smart crockpot. Back to Greg. Chuck Straven has been handpicked by four CEOs over 15 years to bring structure and stability to the organizations. He does it through expanding sales, improving margins, and identifying growth opportunities. Chuck, welcome to the language of business. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. So you have managed to go during your career from manager in your first job to CEO in your last one. In the dog-eat-dog world of retail, how did you pull that feet off? You know, really, it all comes down to having great mentors, and, and at an early point in my career, just having access to opportunities for development. I've been part of some fast-moving entrepreneurial environments over the last you know, 20 plus years of my career and literally right out of college, spent the first five years of my career in retail and was recruited by one of my customers, Jerry Kahn and the folks at the Holmes Group in 94 in my first sales job to join a fast-moving entrepreneurial environment. So at a relatively young age, I had exposure and access to things in the business that most people don't see day to day. Sales planning, business development, strategic planning, finance, marketing, operations, you name it. Being part of a fast-moving environment throws you into the heat of the fire on a day-to-day basis. And you don't realize it at the time. You know, you don't get caught up in and really have a true appreciation and respect for what you're seeing. But over the course of 14 or 15 years, that exposure and that visibility to the true nuances of a business, really, you know, you develop a strong background. And that's, that's part of the success. Is your expertise in introducing products or repositioning them? I think in most organizations, I'm the guy who's using data to really try to figure out what's the marketplace telling us, what is our customer telling us, and really where do we need to go. There'll be times where the marketplace is stale and you do need something innovative to get it going again, but at the same time, there will be times where product just needs a basic refresh. And it's really using that data and seeing what the consumer's telling you, looking at what your retailers are telling you, and really using that data to help define where do you want to go with your product portfolio. Have you used every single product that you have either been the CEO for their company or the representative? I have not used every single product. I've actually kicked the tires on most, and that's probably a good thing, because it's funny, there have been some products over time where I thought, you know, I loved the product and it was a complete dog, and there were others where I thought, you know what, there's no way this product is gonna be successful, and it's actually turned out to be a home run. Looking back at my retail career, I think I learned early on that you don't make the decision for the buyer. What you really want to do is you want to position your company and and really identify a value proposition going in and show to them that there's a need within the marketplace and then come in and position your company as having a solution to a potential problem. You de-emphasize the focus of the widget to more what does the widget do to help solve a problem. And if you can do that, your likelihood of success will be a lot higher long term. What has been your favorite product and your least favorite product? Favorite product has to be back at the Holmes Group when we acquired Rival. We looked at a company that was some Massachusetts type A personalities acquiring a slower moving Midwestern company. Crockpots and can openers and things you'd look at and say, you know what, not very exciting. But as a small electrics guy by heart, you know, that was one of the first categories that I bought right out of college. We actually developed a new technology in crockpots. You know, crockpots had been around for 75 years before we purchased the company. And we developed the first programmable smart crockpot, smart pot. It was a home run. 
As far as on the other side, there's been a few. We did a joint venture with a large publicly traded company in the air freshener space years ago. That was a perfect scenario where a lot of money and a lot of investment was made trying to get the product out into the marketplace. But at the end of the day, the technology didn't line up with what it was supposed to do and it was a crash and burn. It was terrible. Do you as the CEO look at your products as portfolios or do you treat them as individual products? No, you have to look at this as if you're managing the stock market. You know, really it's you're managing a portfolio of product, hoping to maximize your return on investment and minimize your risk. And at the same time, just like the stock market, past successes are no indicator of future growth or future success. So it really is how do you manage that portfolio and how do you maximize the best return you possibly can while minimizing your downside or your risk. And it's funny, as I look back over 25 years, I'd use the analogy from baseball. It's all about getting on base. If you play smart baseball and you know how to put runners in scoring position, I think your success as a company long term would be more, more likely than not. That works in the context of a baseball analogy, but... Each of these products have different margins, they have different cost structures. How do you then figure out what percentage succeed, what percentage fail, and what percentage are gonna break even? Well, I think it all comes down to the metric that you're using. And at the end of the day, 20% or less will be that automatic home run where you just, you, you hit it and it goes out of the park. From a metrics perspective, you're looking at things from a financial perspective. You know, does it hit revenue? Does it hit margin targets? You're looking at it from an engineering and from a quality control perspective. Does it fit? Is the product on time? Does it do what it's supposed to do? Do all the features and benefits line up? Can it be manufactured and produced properly? At the same time, there's a marketing component to that. Where does it fit within my portfolio? Is it going to cannibalize an existing item that's well-performing? Or is it something that's going to just add rocket fuel for development and for growth? And then more importantly, the metrics from what does it do for my retail partners and what does it do for the consumer. If you have a product and it doesn't hit the retailer's requirements, and every retailer in America has a goal and an objective and a budget for new product launches, if it fails to meet there, or more importantly, if you get the product into the marketplace and the consumer gets it home and they're not satisfied with it and it comes back, that's all part of the equation. Having good key metrics along the development process and in the life cycle of your product is truly key. At the same time, I've been involved in companies where as the product development process unfolds, we kill the product before it even gets to market. You know, it didn't hit one of the metrics along the way, either on-time delivery, cost, or just some of the other assumptions in there. So, but I would say at a, you know, at a high level, 20% using that 20% at bats, you know, two out of every 10 at bats, we're gonna hit it out of the park. After 25 years of doing this, if you had to sum it up, what is the key to success? Well-engineered products or effective marketing and sales? You have to have both, you really do. You can't take a product to market and not do anything from a marketing perspective to build awareness. Because I've seen many products over the years, especially in entrepreneurial companies that are bootstrapped, you can have a great product, but if you're not able to promote the benefits and make the consumer aware of what they do, that product's gonna die on the vine. I've seen the flip side as well, where you've, you've marketed it, but engineering fell down somewhere along the way. So you really need to do both and to be, you know, to be successful and have it you know, right smack in the middle. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Greg. Chuck Straven, 25-year history as an expert in consumer-facing products. Still to come, the deodorant packaging you could never get away with today and rebranding a mixer with a powerful woman logo. When the language of business look at, um, let's fix that, continues. Our sponsor is Art Lifting. If you have a small business, or even if you run a Fortune 500 company, you can uplift the look of your office with Art Lifting. Art Lifting has over 1,300 artworks in a variety of styles and prices. You can buy them or rent them and switch them up on a rotation every month or so. But wait, there's more. 
All of the art lifting art is by artists who are homeless or dealing with disabilities. So you not only brighten and uplift your office, you're helping local communities across the USA. To learn more and view the collection, go to artlifting.com. You're listening to the Language of Business look at, um, let's fix that. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Are your insights truly valuable to others? How about your problem-solving abilities? George O'Shea certainly thinks so. He's been working with some of the world's top brands for well over a decade. George, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. Appreciate that. Why is your marketing counsel valuable to others? A lot of people, they don't look at past experience and draw on outside resources to try to get a fresh set of eyes on a problem. We provide a fresh set of eyes and many years of experience to try to bring to take care of a problem that they may have. As an independent marketing consultant, what needles are you trying to move? Revenue, margin, profit, something else? Depends on the problem. Some people are trying to build a brand. In that case, the revenue is not really the key driver. Getting the name out there, getting the product onto the shelf is the key piece. The revenue ideally comes behind it. A lot of times it's people that are trying to tweak a product. In that case, it's definitely revenue. They want to enhance that top line. Ideally, if they tweak the product, it's going to you know, impact their bottom line as well. But it depends on who the customer is and who the client is that they're trying to take care of. Tell us about some of your biggest successes and some of your biggest oopses. Well, it's a lot of oopses. You learn from past mistakes. There was a company that we uh, worked with when I was just starting out, Menin Company, that Colgate owned. Sure. And they came out with a deodorant called Real Deodorant, which was a squeeze top. It wasn't well designed. It was very phallic. And frankly, it was terrible. It was, it was a terrible launch. And it was a classic CPG mistake. And that was fun, actually, to watch how a product was placed, how we got it onto the shelf. And we told them what we thought the problems might be. And frankly, we didn't need a lot of research in that case to find out we were right. It didn't make it. Success is the one that comes to mind is the Ninja. It was a brilliant idea by the people at Europro, skilled marketers, really entrepreneurial, very driven, with an ability to get product on in front of the consumers on TV. They got behind products and they had a quad blade food processor, which was big on the shelf. It was not a good product and it wasn't successful. It was one of the few products they launched that wasn't successful. And they thought they had something. It was a top mount motor. It was a really sharp cutting mechanism. And we went in to meet with them and we streamlined the vessel. We kept the top mount motor on it and decided that the blade was a really powerful blade. And we launched it as a different product. We named it, we gave it an identity, we gave it a personality, and we, we embraced the polarizing piece that was inside the product, which was a sharp blade. We made it the hero of the product and we called it Ninja. How did you come up with Ninja? We assembled a team inside of a breakout room, inside of Proteus, my old colleagues. And Charlie Kahn, who was a brilliant branding guy, was the guy that generated a bunch of different ideas on a storyboard. And we all started to participate in a brainstorming session. And we got to the point where the piece that we were touching, the blade itself, was unique. It was like a dagger. I mean, it was a large, sharp element. It was polarizing. And we decided that to really make a story sing, we needed to make that the hero. We named it Ninja just based on the fact that the ninja can perform any task with a sharp element, and they, generally the outcome is to their favor. It was a very male-oriented type product. It was masculine-looking. We needed to soften it to some degree, so we put a powerful woman on the box in a ninja pose, and we came up with the tagline, Rule the Kitchen. And the intent is that whoever's using the product itself 
they can make any type of a product that they want. The cutting element, the blade, the polarizing feature, it became the hero. And Ninja stuck. It was named, you know, that day inside of an office with a group of people and supported by the people at Europro who thought it was a great idea. And they supported it on TV and drove the heck out of the product. Are you worried that by saying rule the kitchen or making it female that you were cannibalizing part of your market? No, because we saw the, the design of the product, as I said, it was masculine. It needed to be powerful. It was a powerful product. So we had some masculine edges and masculine elements, stainless steel, black. The product really popped when it was on the shelf. It was very different looking. The cutting element, the blade, the polarizing feature, it became the hero. And Ninja, Ninja stuck. It was named you know, that day inside of an office with a group of people and supported by the people at Europro who thought it was a great idea. And they supported it on TV and drove the heck out of the product. Are you worried that by saying rule the kitchen or making it female that you were cannibalizing part of your market? No, because we saw the, the design of the product, as I said, it was masculine. It needed to be powerful. It was a powerful product. We had some masculine edges and masculine elements to it, stainless steel, black. The product really popped when it was on the shelf. It was very different looking than a sea of white that you saw at retail. We knew that a man would be drawn to that product. The woman on the package, she was in a dominant pose, but it was a power pose. It was somebody that we thought people would gravitate towards. We didn't see it as a polarizing feature at all. We thought, if anything, it would draw on both sexes to say, this is a great idea, and this is a powerful product that male or female could use. How many of your ideas get adopted 100% by your client and ultimately shown to the consumer versus heavily edited? It's a tough question. Generally, what you'll see is people, they want ideas. They want fresh eyes. They want somebody to bring a different perspective. When it gets inside of a sterile building, it gets watered down. We've seen a lot of that. That part's disappointing. At Europro, the beauty of Europro was it was really two people at the top that were making most of the executive decisions, and they asked really, really detailed questions. And you could almost see the gentleman that was on TV who owned the company. His mind was always going. It was continuously surfacing ideas, and it was rapid-fire questions that he would throw at the team as we sat in front of him at a conference table. We could tell when he was interested. We could tell when he was hooked. And we could tell, frankly, when he didn't buy the concept. But we never really backed down, and I think he admired us for not backing down. They were an ideal customer to work with from that perspective. Not every client is like that. If you had to distill consumer-facing marketing down to one or two key points, what would be the it factor? Do your homework. Most companies fail on the upfront. They're afraid to spend money on research. They're afraid to spend money on insights. They're fear to go walk a retail shelf and have somebody with good eyes take a look at that shelf and say, you can play in the following areas and this is what's going to take to play there. They want the orders. They want to pull product through, but they don't do the upfront. Perfect example is this Apple iPhone launch. The idea that a product of that caliber is bending, to a guy like me, it's inconceivable. They had to have have a beta test of that product to find out there was an issue with that product. Small companies generally don't do that. Large companies always do that. The biggest mistake they make is to not spend upfront money. Thanks, George. Pleasure to be here. Very much enjoyed it. Thank you. George O'Shea, product analyst, insight expert, and branding maven. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We now have downloads in 42 countries. Welcome to Hong Kong and Brazil and 33 states. 
Thanks. We really appreciate the support. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.